moms, this is your big weekend, right? And uh, I think one of the greatest things I've ever uh, seen written on moms was written by the great theologian Irma Bombeck. And so um, I want to share this with the moms. I think it's so cool. It's called When God Created Mothers. It says, when God was creating mothers, he was into the sixth day of overtime when the angel appeared and said, you're doing a lot of fiddling around on this one. God responded, have you read the specs on this order? She has to be completely washable but not plastic, have 180 movable parts, all replaceable, run on black coffee and leftovers, have a lap that disappears when she stands up, a kiss that can cure anything from a broken leg to a disappointed love affair, and six pairs of hands. The angel shook his head slowly and said, six pairs of hands, no way. It's not the hands that are causing me the problem, God remarked. It's the three pair of eyes that a mother has to have. That's on the standard model, asked the angel. God nodded, yeah. One pair that sees through closed doors when she asks, what are you kids doing in there? When she already knows. Another here in the back of her head that sees what she shouldn't, but what she has to know. And of course, the ones here in front that can look at a child when he goofs up and say, I understand and I love you without so much as uttering a word. God said the angel, touching his sleeve gently, get some rest tomorrow. I can't, said God. I'm so close to creating something so close to myself. Already I have one who heals herself when she is sick, can feed a family of six on one pound of hamburger, and get a nine-year-old to stand under a shower. <laughs> the angel circled the model of a mother very slowly. It's too soft, he sighed. But tough, God said excitedly. You can't imagine what this mother can do or endure. Can it think? Not only can it think, but it can reason and compromise, said the creator. Finally, the angel bent over and ran his finger across the cheek. There's a leak, he pronounced. I told you that you were trying to put too much into this model. It's not a leak, God said. It's a tear. A tear? What's that for, asked the angel. It's for joy and sadness and disappointment and pain and loneliness and pride. You're a genius, said the angel. Somberly, God said, I didn't put the tear there. I always like reading that. This is your special weekend, and we honor you, and we hold you in that esteemed position that God has given you. So at all of our campuses, at Holly Springs, West Cary, here in Raleigh, I'm going to ask, if you're here and you're a mom, would you just stand for a second? And some of you, you're almost a mom. In fact, you could go into labor. I've seen some of you during this. You stand too. Let's applaud. All of these, look at these incredible women around us this weekend. So good to have you guys here. You may be seated. You know, there's one word that you always associate with moms, and it's this word. It's selflessness. I mean, when it comes to mom, it's always all about others. And I got to tell you, that characteristic in itself makes moms unique in this culture. Because if you haven't discovered it yet, we live in a culture where almost every philosophy that you can choose to live by focuses not on others, it focuses on self. For example, education says expand yourself. Psychology comes along and says exert yourself. Materialism says please yourself. Pride says promote yourself. Humanism comes along and says believe in yourself. Even religion says conform yourself. I mean, it's all about self. It's either do something for yourself, do something with yourself, do something to yourself, but it's about self, self, self. But then you begin to read the Gospels or you show up in church or you begin to do a study uh, of the Bible and you discover that Jesus comes along and says, you're not that big of a deal. Forget yourself. Focus on others. 
And, and, and when Jesus tells us how we're supposed to focus on others, have you noticed he kept it pretty simple? He said this in Luke chapter 6, verse 31. Do to others as you would have them do to you. I mean, that's pretty simple. Jesus says just good common sense. Treat other people the way that you want to be treated by other people. But let's be honest, in observing the average American, you would think that Jesus said, do unto others as they deserve to be done unto. That's the philosophy that some of us live by. Or do unto others as they do unto you. It's kind of a tit-for-tat mentality. Or do unto others before they do unto you. Or do unto others as the mood dictates in the moment, you know, that you do unto them, right? I mean, let's just be honest. That describes how most people live their life in this culture. It's all about me. It's all about mine. It's all about myself. And I guess that's okay. I mean, a lot of people live that way. That's the philosophy they want to live by. And I guess that's okay then, unless you decide that you want to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And once you decide that you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm going to tell you, selfishness, self-centeredness, living for self, that becomes a huge problem. And it gets even more complicated as you're reading through the scriptures and you come across something like Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 that says this, follow God's example. In other words, as followers of Jesus Christ, that's our standard, just follow God, be imitators of God. And let's be honest, that's easy, that's easy to say. And it's easier said than done when it comes to how you're supposed to treat me and how I'm supposed to treat you. For example, Jesus in John 13, 34 said this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you. And how did Jesus love us? He loved us unconditionally. He accepted us where we are. He said, we'll go forward from here. So Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. That means that as a follower of Jesus Christ, if I'm going to follow God's example... I have to, I don't have a choice, I have to unconditionally love you. Now here's the problem. Some of you just aren't that easy to love unconditionally. I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but we actually have Carolina fans here. And yet God tells me, I got to love you unconditionally. I struggle with that, you know. And then Paul's writing in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32, he says this. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Get this now, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. How did God forgive you? Totally and unconditionally. That means as a follower of Jesus Christ, if I'm going to follow God's example, I have to totally and unconditionally forgive you. Regardless of what you do to me. Here's the problem. If I unconditionally forgive you, it just kind of seems like I'm letting you off the hook. It seems like there aren't any consequences to your actions that you're getting off scot-free. But then, here's what you have to understand. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I don't really have a choice. Because God has set the example for me to treat you, not really the way you treat me. God has set the example for me to treat you the way he has treated me. In fact, this is what I'm learning as I'm getting older and wiser. When it comes to my relationship with God... Going to church isn't enough. Reading the Bible isn't enough. Praying occasionally isn't enough. Giving some money isn't enough. Being in a small group or connected in community isn't enough. The quality of my relationship with God is measured by the depth and maturity, get this now, of my relationship with you. That's how God measures my relationship with him. It's measured by my willingness to do unto you 
as God has done unto me. Now that's what this series is all about. That's what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. And we're going to be talking about what kind of habits do we need to develop in our life if we're going to get to the place where we begin to treat one another the way God treats us. And I've used this quote, you've heard it before, sow a thought, reap an act, sow an act, reap a habit, sow a habit, reap your character, sow your character, reap your destiny. And whenever I've used this, I've always used it in a negative sense. I didn't realize that till I was working on this message. You know, I'll say, sow a bad thought, you reap a bad act, you do it enough, you're going to reap a bad character, a bad habits, bad character, then you go, all of a sudden you're going to have a bad destiny, you know, you know the, 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 the way of the transgressor is hard, I use stuff like that. But what if we put a positive spin on that? What if we had a godly thought, an obedient thought, and that turned into an act? We didn't just think about it, we actually did something with that godly thought. And what if that turned into a habit? See, this is what would happen. It would begin to define our character and it would determine our destiny. So this weekend as we begin the series, we're going to begin with what I believe is maybe the hardest habit for us to develop in our lives. And it's this, our willingness to serve each other. And this is really, really important. Because when it comes to serving one another, I got to tell you, God is not that interested in our good intentions. God is not that interested that every once in a while we have a thought, maybe I should serve somebody, maybe I should do something, or that maybe once a year we have a random act of service. No, God wants it to become a habit that defines our character and it determines our destiny. And what is our destiny if we develop a habit of serving other people, putting others above ourselves? Jesus Christ said this, when you get there, here's, here, here's your destiny, greatness. That's when I consider you great. So that's what we're going to talk about. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. And while you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of background. Uh, Galatians is a letter, literally, that was written by the great apostle Paul to a group of churches. These churches were located uh, just north of the Mediterranean Sea. And like Paul, these people, the recipients of the letter, they were also Jewish. That means that before they decided to become Christians, to be followers of Jesus Christ, their lives had been involved in Judaism. That meant they had lived their entire lives under the law. So Paul, he's writing the book of Galatians. He's writing this letter to Jewish Christians, Jewish believers, who have lived their whole life under the law of Moses. And they're trying to figure out how do we balance the law of Moses, what we've heard all of our life, with the teachings of Jesus. By the way, the law of Moses is basically the book of Leviticus, okay? And we're all familiar with the book of Leviticus because that's the book that keeps us from reading through the Bible every time we decide we're going to read through the Bible. You know what I'm saying? You start out in Genesis, it's smooth sailing. You got creation, you got the flood, you got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and it's great stories and you just love it. And you get to Exodus and you find out that the Hebrew people have been in bondage for 400 years and God raises up this great character, this great leader named Moses. And there's the ten plagues and the Pharaoh lets the people go and there's the Red Sea and there's Mount Sinai, there's the Ten Commandments. I mean, it's all kinds of adventure. And then you get to Leviticus and it's like, Arr! I mean, it's the, it's the Feast of Booths, it's the Feast of Passover, it's sacrifices, do it this way, it's the heave offering, it's the wave offering. And you just shut the Bible and say, I'm done. I'll wait and I'll hear it some other time, you know? But you got to understand this. Before Christ came, the law was the only way that a person could have access to God. 
And under the law, God did require things like priests and animals and sacrifices. But this is what we forget. Sometimes we don't understand. When Jesus came and died on our behalf, he did away with the need for animal sacrifices. And it's because when Jesus died on the cross for us, he was offered up once and for all as the ultimate sacrifice on behalf of our sin. This is how Paul described it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He says this, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, perfect and holy, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, that's why, because Christ became sin for us. He died for us. That's why we no longer have to drag a sheep or a goat to church. Aren't you glad about that? Try to tell the Fuquay people that, though. I'm telling you, they just can't get it through their head. But that's why we don't need to bring animals to church. That's why we no longer need a priest to be our mediator. It's because since we've been reconciled back to God through Jesus, we now have direct access to God. We don't need a priest. So understand, when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he finally uttered these words, it is finished, he wasn't referring to his life. He wasn't saying, my death has finally come, it is finished. No, he was referring to his work that he came to do. He was saying the law is finished, the Levitical system, it's finished, the old covenant, it's finished. This new covenant based on my grace and my mercy that you can now have this relationship with God. You can be reconciled back to God through what I did. That old has been finished and the new has come. So now Paul writes this letter to help these Jewish Christians, these Jewish believers understand all of this. And he says basically this. You're now free from the law, and the reason you're free from the law is because Christ fulfilled the law. And so now, instead of focusing on your relationship with the law, I want you to focus on your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, you can imagine what it was like when these people heard that they were no longer under the bondage of the law, that they were free from the law. You know what it was like? It was like the first time you got to drive your mom or dad's car without them in the car with you. You know what I'm saying? You went through driver's training. You had that instructor there every day. And then you had months where every time you drove, your parents had to be in the car with you. But there was that first time when they handed you the keys and said, be careful, obey all the laws. And you said, don't worry, I will. And you got around the corner in your mom's minivan and you said, let's see what this bad boy will do. You know, the first time you had it. It's like the college kid who grew up maybe in a Christian home and in church or maybe even homeschooled in a Christian school and now they go off to college for the very first time and they have all of this freedom and the lid just blows off. That's what's going on in Galatia. I mean, these people, they're running around toasting with champagne, sparklers in their hand. They're like, we are free, no more law. We can sin all we want because we've been forgiven and we're still going to go to heaven anyway. And then you got this other group who are saying, ah, that can't be right. I don't think it's like that. So there's all this confusion. And Paul writes this letter to help them sort it out. But this is what I want you to see. In this letter, Paul makes a statement about serving. Galatians 5.13, he says this. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. No doubt about it. Jesus Christ set you free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Literally, it means don't use your freedom for your own self-centeredness. In other words, don't say, now that I don't have to be nice, I'm not going to be nice. Don't say, now that I don't have to keep the rules, I'm not going to keep the rules. In other words, don't be like the college freshman that's away from home for the very first time. Paul says, instead of acting like that, now that you're free from the law, understand you have a brand new opportunity. 
you now have an opportunity to freely choose to do some things that in the past you had to do. In the past you were commanded and demanded to do. Now you get to do some things not because you have to, because you can freely choose to. It's kind of like doing chores around the house, right? For me, it's emptying the dishwasher. I don't mind emptying the dishwasher if it's my idea to empty the dishwasher. In fact, when I decide to, it's a production when I empty the dishwasher. I will rise up from my brown leather chair and I say, Laura, honey, dear, I will now empty the dishwasher. And it's like the background music. You can hear it. Dun, dun, da, da, dun, da, da, dun, da, da, dun. You know, I make as much noise as I can. It is an event when I empty the dishwasher because it's my idea. But if I'm sitting in my big brown leather chair and Laura says, Mike, get up off your rear end and empty the dishwasher. I'm like, oh, it's like the law, right? That's what Paul's talking about. He's saying you're not under the law anymore. God no longer is measuring your relationship with him based on your performance. That stuff is over with. That stuff is in the past. You are free. So now that you're free, you can either say, hey, it's not my job to empty the dishwasher. I'm never emptying the dishwasher again. I'm free. Or Paul says, now that you don't have to, you can freely do it. You can make that choice. And choosing to do it freely, you now have the opportunity to make an impact relationally that you didn't have before when you had to do it. That's what he's talking about. Look what he says in verse 13. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, in other words, instead, serve one another humbly in love. He said, don't use this freedom all on yourself, your self-centeredness. Instead, Direct it toward other people and serve one another humbly in love. Not because you have to, but now because you get to. By the way, what does it mean to serve? It means this. When you see a need, you meet it. When there's something that needs to be done, you do it. And it's not because you have to. It's because you want to. It's because You get to, and then Paul continues in verse 13, serve one another humbly in love for the entire law. The book of Leviticus, which Paul had to memorize as a child. The book of Leviticus, all the rules, all the regulations, all the laws, all the hoops, all of that, he says, is fulfilled in keeping this one command. And this verse is actually found for the very first time in Leviticus 19, verse 18. It says this, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law can be summed up in that one phrase, love your neighbor as yourself as yourself I mean basically Paul says all of that stuff that you spent years of your life trying to get right all of the rules all the regulations all the feasts the sacrifices all the do's all the don'ts all of those hoops you had to jump through trying to please God this is all that God was after the entire time you can sum it up in one statement love your neighbor as yourself and how do you love your neighbor as yourself Paul says it's real simple. You serve one another. When you see a need, you meet it. When something needs to be done, you do it. And then he gives an interesting contrast in verse 15. If you bite and devour each other, now don't take that literally. He's not saying literally. He's he's not suggesting cannibalism here. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. It's interesting, this term, bite and devour. Uh, this, was, this was a term that was used in the first century to describe a fight between two dogs. And if, if the fight was especially violent, 
you had to back off and you just let them have, you had to let them go at it. You couldn't even get involved. You had to let them go at it until one was destroyed. That's the picture that he uses here. That's the analogy. So Paul basically says this. You're free. You don't have to serve. You can choose to allow that self-centered part of you to reign and rule. That's fine. That's certainly your option. But Paul says, I want you to understand this. And they understood this analogy. He says, if you continue to bite, if you continue to devour, to take advantage of each other, you will destroy each other. Here's another way of saying it when you put it all together in its context. If in your life you continue to only serve yourself, eventually you will be all by yourself. Not physically, but maybe physically. I mean, some of you are physically alone. And part of the reason is you've never developed the habit, the heart of a servant. Maybe physically, maybe not physically. It certainly would be emotionally. In fact, I guarantee you that's a, that describes some of you here this weekend when it comes to your home. I mean, you live, you have a household full of people. There, there's, there's a lot of activity, but everybody's kind of built, built their own little kingdom, their own little castle, their own little world under one roof. No one's serving one another. Somebody walks by the dishwasher, it's like, I hope somebody does that. I hope somebody takes the trash out. I hope somebody makes sure the dog gets fed. But nobody's willing to serve one another. Dad comes home, he's not going to serve anybody, so he just gets on his computer. Kids come home, they're not going to serve. Parents, you've taught them that the whole universe revolves around them, so they just get on their smartphone. Mom's frustrated because nobody ever serves her, so she's on her iPad. Even the dog's watching ESPN. I mean, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and you feel so alone, although you're surrounded by people all the time. That's what Paul's talking about. Paul says that's what happens. If you continually say yes to that small voice deep down inside of you that keeps telling you it's all about you, it's all about you, it's all about you. And if you refuse to serve others, if, if you refuse to do what needs to be done, if you refuse to meet needs when they need to be met, he says if you only serve yourself, he says mark it down, down the road you will be all by yourself. And then he summarizes everything by giving us some advice in verse 16. He says this. So this is what I say. Let me sum it up. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, if you walk by the Spirit, you won't spend all your energy on yourself. Now, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Well, a couple of years ago, I did a series called Walk This Way. And I'm sure you can go online on our website, and you could listen to that entire series. But this is what you need to understand. The moment you decide to accept what Jesus Christ did that provided salvation for you, his death, his burial, his resurrection, when you acknowledge the only way I can have a relationship with God is not through my good works, not through my efforts, it's only through what Jesus Christ did for me. When you get there, you become a Christian. And at that moment, the person of the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life. So this idea of walking according to the Spirit literally means once the Holy Spirit is in your life, you're keeping in step with the Spirit. 
It's living every day sensitive to and dependent upon the inner promptings and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. In other words, as I'm living my life this week and I come up against selfishness, I just want to look out for number one. I have to stop and say, Holy Spirit, I cannot handle my self-centeredness. I can't handle... Uh, how I feel, I can't handle my temptation to only focus on me. So I am putting all of my trust, Holy Spirit, in your power to handling it. I'm trusting you to do through me what I cannot do myself. That's what it means to walk according to the Spirit. By the way, that means that our goal in the Christian life isn't just to stop doing certain things. Our goal in the Christian life isn't to start doing certain things like, like serving one another or loving one another or forgiving one another. Really, the goal in the Christian life is to learn to do this one thing, and that's to walk in the Spirit. And as we learn to walk in the Spirit, the, the result will be there will be certain things in our behavior, certain things in our lifestyle that will begin to change. And it's not because of our discipline. It's not because of our maturity. It's not because of our willpower. It's not based on how well we know the Bible. It's because when we learn to walk according to the Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And as you learn to walk according to the Spirit, Paul says, just understand, God is going to lead you in the direction of serving other people. And i got to tell you, this is so crucial to our development as followers of Jesus Christ because when we begin to serve others, we break the control of selfishness in our lives. When we begin to serve other people, we break the control of self-centeredness in our lives. When we serve others, it's like saying, I am not going to let selfishness master me. I'm not going to wait until I have more time. I'm not going to wait until I have a change of heart. I'm not going to wait until I discover my spiritual gift. I'm not going to wait until there's this perfect area for me to serve. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, I am going to master my selfishness. And when I see a need, I am going to meet it. And when I see something that needs to be done, I am going to do it. you got to understand, every time we make this decision, we take a step toward breaking the power of self-centeredness in our lives. By the way, I've always said that if I could start our church all over again, the one thing I would do differently would be from day one, we would focus nonstop on serving others. And I believe I would do that because I believe, I've learned that I, I think serving is the catalyst. It is the springboard for spiritual maturity in our lives. And this is why. When you begin to serve other people, you will begin to love people who at one time seemed unlovable. When you begin to serve other people, you will begin to forgive people who at one time in your life seemed unforgivable. When you begin to serve other people, you will begin to accept people who at one time in your life, they seemed unacceptable. And when you're doing that, you're following God's example. And that's our goal. And let me just tell you, we're never more like God than when we decide we are going to put others first. By the way, one of our five goals here at Hope is, is, is serving where we're gifted and I've been thinking a lot about that lately. Certainly, that's the goal we want to get to. We want to discover the spiritual gift that the Holy Spirit brought with him when he took up residence in our lives. We want to, and you should take the shape class. You should figure that out. 
But a lot of us, we've kind of we've hidden behind that serve where we're gifted. We've kind of used it as a loophole a little bit. We'll say, well, I haven't discovered my spiritual gift, so I can't serve. Or some people, you have discovered your spiritual gift, and you see yourself as so unique and so lofty. I mean, there's no way you're going to park cars. There's no way you're going to change diapers in the nursery. You don't do stuff like that because you are just so incredibly gifted, right? And so your reason for not serving is, well, I'm not going to serve because the church hasn't provided the area for me to serve that really matches up with my giftedness let me just say something the kind of serving we're talking about this weekend it begins with a choice this is a decision this is not based on a feeling this is not based on your giftedness you know what it's based on it's based on your maturity it's based on walking in the spirit it's based on there's a need I'm going to meet it there's something that needs to be done I'm going to do it and I'll tell you why I've landed there when we were leading up to Easter this year, and I was going through the series as we were getting there, and I talked about the scenario, Jesus in the upper room with his disciples in John chapter 13. I saw something in that chapter. I guess I read a million times, but I'd never seen it like this before. Let me close by showing it to you. If you have your Bible, John chapter 13, let me kind of give you the context. Jesus is at the end of his ministry. He knows that. No more miracles. It is over. He's gathered with his 12 disciples in the upper room for one final meal now let me set the stage Judas is there in just a few minutes he is going to betray Jesus and Jesus knows it Peter is there and in the next few hours Peter's going to deny, deny that he ever knew Jesus and Jesus knows it the other ten are there and they're going to run away and they're going to desert Jesus when he needs them to mo the most and Jesus knows that so in this scenario we've got Jesus We've got the betrayer, we've got the denier, and we've got the deserters. John 13, verse 2. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and he had come from God, and he was returning to God. Freeze right there. Put yourself in this situation. You are surrounded by guys, your friends, and you know that they're going to betray you, they're going to deny you, and they're going to desert you. God has put all authority in your hands. He's given you power over everything. That means whatever decision you decide to make right now, it's the right decision. There are no wrong choices. Whatever you decide to do with these guys, God has got your back. You have the authority, you have the power, you've come from the Father, you know your destiny. In just a few hours, you'll be back with the Father. You have these guys right where you want them. What would you do? What would you do with the betrayer, the denier, the deserters? Verse 4. So, in other words, with all of that in mind, he got up from the mill, he took off his outer clothing, and he kicked butt and took names. Right? Mm -mm. He wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. In other words, in a moment when all power and all authority was his, when he had the betrayer and the denier and the deserters right where he wanted them. When he could have done anything to them he wanted and the father would have said, you, I got your back. 
he washed their feet. He served them. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. (laughs) If that would have been me, serving them would have been the last thing on my mind. Serving them up, maybe, right? But but not, not serving them. Now, listen to how Jesus interprets this event in verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. And I think there was probably just a long pause here. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. In other words, Jesus says, I want you to leverage the freedom that I am giving you to serve others. I want you to recognize a need and meet it. I want you to figure out what needs to be done and do it. Not because they deserve it. Not because you feel like it. Not because that's where you're gifted but because that's what I did for you. That's how I treated you. Isn't that the most unbelievable thing you have ever heard? Can you imagine, what if we all adopted this attitude? What if we all walked around thinking, what is the need and how can I meet it? What needs to be done and how can I do it? Now let me just close by saying this. There are a lot of people in this church every weekend spread out at all of our campuses uh, that are consistently serving you. They they just decided, you know, they were going to follow God's example and they were going to serve you. (laughs) They arrive early and they stay late making sure that everything runs smoothly. They make sure that you have a place to park your car and they make sure that you feel welcome. They change your baby's diapers. They take care of your kids. They mentor your teenagers. They serve you coffee. They even clean your spills up afterwards. They show up during the week and rehearse, and they show up on the weekends and spend hours leading us in worship, not because we deserve it, not because they feel like it, but because they chose to follow God's example. Now, this is where I just get to be honest with you, because when you start a church, you can say stuff like this. That's a segment of our conversation. And then there's a big segment of you that just take and take and take and take and take, and you never serve in return and you're nice and when you see someone in the parking lot you might smile and wave but you don't serve let me tell you they would never complain they're servants but I'll tell you what they're thinking I promise you this they're wondering why don't you deal with your self-centeredness they don't understand why you think it's all about you They don't understand why you think you're the exception when it comes to serving other people. They don't understand why you think they would want to spend time with your kids when you don't even want to spend time with your kids, right? I mean, let's be honest. But I'll tell you why. It goes back to Galatians chapter 5. You've allowed your freedom, the absence of rules and structure that says you have to serve, you've allowed your freedom to make you so self-absorbed That you're now hindering what God could do, not just in our church, not just in our community, but more importantly, in your life. 
You see, when you serve, you fulfill God's entire law. You love your neighbor. You love your spouse. You love your kids. You love your coworkers. You love your fellow church members as, you, as yourself. And when you do that, you are following God's example. You are mimicking him. You are imitating him. Now, we want to give you the chance to become a servant. Not just to think about it. Not just to have an act, but actually develop a habit. If you have your bulletin, you can pull out. There's this just yellow sheet here that just says serve. And we've made this so easy. Some of our staff has been working on this for so long. You can go, there's several ways you can do it. We think if you try it, you'll like it. In fact, if you want to meet people at Hope, this is the best way to meet and connect and build relationships. You can scan the QR code. You can text serve. You, you, can, you can click serve at gethope.net. There's obviously the phone app if you have a smart, smartphone. There are kiosks in the atrium. But all you have to do is you go and you click that button. And it's going to simply ask you a few questions. Then within three days, you're going to get a response of five areas based on your, what your answers to the questions. Five areas you would probably enjoy serving. Now, you don't have to sign up for anything. You're not committing for anything. We're just going to ask you, come one week and follow someone who's doing that ministry. Maybe it's someone in the parking lot and you just stand there and hold their umbrella for them. You know, maybe it's a greeter and you just look stupid while they're opening the door and smiling at everybody. Maybe it is in Kid City. You know, we have people in Kid City that are big shots at SAS and they come here and work with small kids, four and five year old kids in their small group. It's not because they're gifted. It's because they saw a need and met it. They saw something that needed to be done and they're doing it. So we're going to ask you just to, and, and if you come and you say, well, I didn't really like that, then you're going to have several more choices that you can try, but we're going to ask you to try it. And we really believe that if you try it, that you'll like it. And I'll just tell you this right now. It will destroy selfishness in your life. In fact, some of those little self-centered snotty kids you guys have, you can get them to serve. I always think of Carl Morosky's son, Teague. He has been serving in Kid City, I think, since he was about seven or eight years old. Every weekend. And I thought, what a great way to break selfishness in the lives of our kids by teaching them it's not all about them, but it's about others. But parents, you set the example, and if they don't see you serving, they're never going to serve. So click the button, see what's going to happen. We're going to follow you up, and you're going to have an opportunity to get on a projection trajectory of spiritual maturity. This is what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Because some of you right now, you're talking yourself out of it. So this is what Jesus said. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I think he looks at us this weekend and says, there's your example. Now go imitate me. Let's pray together. Father, right now, I want you to work in our hearts because if we're going to reach the triangle and change the world, it won't happen if we're just a bunch of self-centered people thinking and focusing on our own needs and what we want. It will happen as we decide that we're going to serve and live outside of ourselves and sometimes take the back seat and put others in front of ourselves. And people serve us and we serve in return. And we treat others the way that you've treated us. And Father, we see that example so beautifully in the life of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, place in our heart the desire to serve, not when we feel like it, not when we find our spiritual gift niche, but to just be a servant. Father, I'm not sure it was your spiritual gift to have, have your son wash feet, but he saw a need and he met it. There was something that needed to be done and he did it.
And he says, that's the example. If I've done this to you, you treat one another this way. Father, I pray that there will just be a, a whirlwind of your spirit working in our hearts as we become people that look at others and see the opportunity to serve others and invest in the lives of others. And we're so thankful, Father, that when you saw us, you put us first and said, I love my son so much that I gave him to you to be your savior. We thank you for that. And we see, Father, we thank you right now because I believe you're gonna do incredible things to our congregation as we develop the hearts of servants. In your name we pray.